Father John O'Malley, you are the author of What Happened at Vatican II, a seminal work by a historian who was there at the time. And you've spoken in Ireland a few years ago on that topic. Since then, something has happened that I don't think you or any prophet would have predicted, and that is we have a Jesuit Pope. What difference has it made to that trajectory of history that we now have Pope Francis? I think it's made a tremendous difference. I first began to write on Vatican II in 1971, just almost out of my hip pocket, and thought that was it. But I've written again and again about the Council, and finally in 2008 I published the book, What Happened to Vatican II. And I did this because I felt that uh, people really didn't understand the Council, and it needed to be uh, put in perspective. So once I published the book, I was often asked to speak about the council and so forth. And I would, I would come home very discouraged because I felt it's inter- the kind of council is very interesting, but I'm talking about a relic from the past. It's gone. Uh, it's dead, it seems. That changed on March the 13th, 2013, with the election of Pope Francis. I find it remarkable he's the first pope in 50 years not to have participated in the council And in my book, that's an advantage. Why is that? Well, I feel that uh, Paul VI and John, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, on some level, were still fighting the battles of the council. And although they were supporters of the council, so it was very selective and so forth. Whereas Bergoglio was a seminarian when the council was in session. He kind of learned it pure, I think, (laughs) and without being sort of entangled in the council. And he really seems to have taken it to heart. I mean, for instance, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires and carried on that long, long dialogue with Rabbi Abraham Skorka, that could not have happened without the Second Vatican Council. And no other prelate in Roman Catholic history, even since the Second Vatican Council, has done anything remotely resembling it. And so uh, he's got this dialogue in his very bones, collegiality, his establishment of this G8 and then G9, the cardinals to help him, and then the way he's handled this recent synod. They're free to speak their mind. It's not a rubber stamp. So uh, I, the whole thing has changed. It, it's just been a dramatic change. The Second Vatican Council is back. <laughs> <laughs> and with the joy of that, that many people would feel, nonetheless, sometimes it strikes me that he's in a bit of a bind, and I think that bind is exemplified by, say, what's happening in the debate between Cardinal um, Walter Casper and then Mueller and people like Raymond Burke in your own country of America whereby the Pope is allowing that dialogue and it's open and it's dissent and it's happening. Those who are of the more Vatican II mind would want him to impose his authority and say, get on with it, Walter, or whatever. Mm. And yet, because he is in that collegial mode, he has to let this play out. Is that right? I think that's absolutely right. 
And uh, although he may disagree with uh, Mueller and certainly, certainly with Burke, he doesn't want to squelch their voices because he, he wants to say, OK, we're going to try to arrive at something, especially in the Senate, and everybody should speak his or her mind. And I say her because there were and will be some women present. And so I think this is part, and it, this is a bind. I mean, it's the, it's the problem of freedom, right? And the problem of freedom of expression, freedom of the press. Everyone can express press their, their views. So it can be, I think, embarrassing to him and maybe more than embarrassing, but it's the price he has to pay. Talking about Cardinal Burke and America, am I right in saying that there does appear, since the election of Pope Francis, that the American right, and they would call themselves the American right, has galvanised themselves against what they see are, I suppose, his liberal tendencies or his collegial tendencies, to a fairly ferocious extent. I mean, some of it is vitriolic and some of it is just entrenchment there. That's somebody looking from outside within. You're there. Can you shed a light on that? Is that correct? Well, I don't follow it that closely, I have to admit. Despite that... If the, all these polls and so forth show that Pope Francis is still uh, very much overwhelmingly, he says, approval of the way he's doing his job. So uh, it's really uh, hard to say, but it's part of that radical American fundamentalism that uh, is uh, so rampant in our country that it's very discouraging and uh, people just set in very rigid ways and unable, it seems, to take a look at the big picture. It's discouraging, but at the same time, it's more or less inevitable. It will be interesting to see what happens when Pope Francis comes to the United States in October, because during this visit, he's going to address both houses of Congress, and Congress is now dominated by the Republicans, and they have positions diametrically opposed to his on things like immigration and uh, uh, the environment and so forth. So if Pope Francis speaks his mind on these issues, he's not going to be very popular with that group, I can tell you. No, and and in particular his critique of capitalism. Oh, his critique of capitalism, right. Now, of course, John Paul II uh, was very critical of capitalism, but he didn't press the American right on that because of their strong stand on certain uh, life issues and sexual issues and so forth. So he kind of soft-pedaled that with the American right. But I don't think Francis is going to do that. He doesn't do soft-pedal, does he? No, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another question in in regard to this. As a historian now, then, when you look at where we are and you're happy Vatican II is back, what do you see then are the challenges for the future? Because certainly there used to be a slogan here in Ireland for a political party which was a lot done, a lot more to do. That would be the case too, wouldn't it, for the Pope and for the Church at large as the people of God? Yes, but that is perennial. The Christian life is an ongoing project for each individual and therefore for the church. So, you know, that that in itself is nothing new. It's always been an uphill struggle. As they say, you know, trouble with Christianity is it's never been tried. Well, that's it's never going to be tried because we're human beings, right? We're weak and we have our faults and so forth. So, But however, that having been said, 
there is a special problem today with this in the West and then spreading this radical secularization. So uh, people really feel they don't need God and they're turned off by especially organized religion. So that's the challenge. Now, Pope Francis has been able to some extent to address that simply by his actions. I think what he's trying to do is call people to their best selves. And people recognize that and need that and want that. So that's one way of getting at this big problem. And I think that's that's about all anybody can do. It's the call of the gospel. And is that enough, do you think, in terms of the power, say, of the curia, you know, that permanent block of civil servants that are there that so pained somebody, a reformer like John the Twenty Third, Has Francis made a, a dent there? Well, I think Francis is uh, a little more astute. I mean, John XXIII is one of my great heroes, but I think it, uh, Pope Francis is a little more astute in that he is, and he was recognized as, and one reason he was elected was, he was recognized as a very firm and clear administrator. And the very fact that he's established this sort of outside body to help him with the curia. And again, the curia is it's an ongoing project because it's like any bureaucracy. It's, uh, it always has to be sort of cleaning house. But he, he has a special problem right now because it really needs cleaning house in a special way. So I think we have to wait and see. But I give him a plus so far that uh, he'll be able to deal with this problem, and he recognizes he's in charge. What's interesting in the States, there was, I guess about a year ago now, there was this long article about him in Fortune magazine. Uh, it was a big business magazine, and, and a very laudatory because of his uh, administrative and executive style and abilities. So that's a good sign, I think. So overall, as a historian, as the author of that book, you can now say you have lived long enough to see uh, another hopeful day dawning. Absolutely. As I said, I, I thought in uh, March the 12th, 2013, it was all over. March the 13th, 2013, I thought, oh, maybe not. 